Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Mark Calder. He is an honorary fellow at the University of Durham in the United Kingdom in the Religion and Theology Department. He presently works for World Vision UK as a humanitarian policy advisor. Today we will be discussing his new book, Bethlehem's Syriac Christians, Self, Nation, and Church in Dialogue and Practice, published by Orgius Press. Mark, thank you for your time and availability today. I couldn't be more grateful. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks, Ari. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Um, Can you share with us about your upbringing and if there are any formative events in your life that inspired your scholarly journey? Thanks. Yes, I I grew up in the West Midlands of England um, in a, I suppose, an evangelical Christian uh, Protestant household um, and uh, and had a a relatively uh, secure safe, happy upbringing. Um, I think I've always had uh, a certain restlessness, scepticism maybe um, as part of my own personal journey that has never quite become oppositional. So, you know, I never I never exactly left the faith and I <laughs> never particularly rebelled against it. But I was always quite curious about what indeed um, it is to be Christian uh, in the 21st century now, um, and uh, and have always been fascinated both by the very dark history of some parts of Christianity, some of the problematic um, theological knotty problems, and and of course you know what it means to belong within uh, a Christian community uh, as part of the kind of 21st century um modern secular west if you like uh when i was 18 19 i i did a little bit of traveling uh, ended up in the middle east encountered middle eastern christians for the first time and ended up volunteering in the west bank in nablus during the second intifada at the university of anajah where i was worshiping with the anglican community there which was a very small community but I remember clearly being struck by their liturgical use of the Book of Psalms, you know, Hebrew poems of praise, of lament, um, Hebrew poems also that have been used very much against their interests um, in some parts of the church, not least the part of the church that I grew up in, really. And so that kind of set up this question for me about how different kinds of Palestinian Christian use scripture differently 
and in particular how they use it beyond simply exegesis and interpretation and, and, and fighting over what the Bible means. What is the Bible in their lives? How does it work? How does it function? And how does it relate to other aspects of their self-formation? So, uh, yeah, that was really how I came to, to be involved in, in the kinds of questions that eventually produced this book. What message do you hope to convey to readers in this book? Mm. There's many, and I, I think the book kind of darts around a little bit. Um, it certainly exp explores certain um, avenues, maybe some rabbit holes as well. Um, but I think one of the things that really is key is that in the context of political contests in the Middle East, particularly between you know Israel and its supporters and the Palestinians and their supporters, Palestinian Christians of various sorts can be a kind of currency. You know, their experience is often reduced on the one hand to, well, they're not Palestinians, they're Arabs who, you know, are maybe in extreme cases, they're portrayed as being persecuted by their Muslim neighbours. And then on the other hand, within kind of Palestinian solidarity discourse, all the kind of divisions and diversity and disagreements and contests between different Palestinians, including along confessional lines are often glossed such that you know it's common to hear people say you know we're all we're all just Palestinians and I think hopefully in in looking at the the predicament in the kind of fine fine-grained way that I try to do in the book that Palestinian Syriac Christians have navigated so creatively we'll see that diversity in Palestinian Christian experience, even within a small community like the Syriac Orthodox community in Bethlehem, isn't something that needs to undermine their material, political, immediate um, aspirations as Palestinians. Uh, but actually, this diversity is part of what is precious about Palestinian heritage, about Palestinian culture, um, and that really acknowledging that there is great difference and diversity is an important part of doing justice to Palestinian lives as they actually are, perhaps not as we would wish them to be from a viewpoint or another. So there are many other messages that are in there that speak to different kind of theories or different um, different kind of constituencies. But but I hope if, if people read this and are wondering, you know, it's not a very political book, I hope that kind of uh, foregrounding of diversity and difference in this in in a quite kind of fine-grained way as I say is something that enriches discourse around Palestine and Israel rather than um you know feeding a, a kind of reductive political narrative what are the primary themes in your book what story does your book tell mm. well in, in a sense it, it it's a old-fashioned ethnography in one sense, in that it's simply called you know, Bethlehem's Syriac Christians, uh, and and I, I, I approach various parts of their social social life uh, in as much detail as I can. But in many ways, it's a very different kind of ethnography from 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 a kind of classic anthropological study of a people. It deals with the relationship to, to diaspora. It deals with the place of uh, ritual in a in a slightly different way than perhaps you, you might expect and very central to it is how we think of uh, identity how we think of self-formation in particular in relation to an environment 
So it begins by exploring the Bethlehem environment on foot. I, I describe going for a couple of long runs around Bethlehem and reflect on the, the power relations that are inscribed in that landscape. And as I begin to populate that picture with Syriac Christian lives, as well as those of their neighbours, I posit this fundamental problem of displacement in situ. And this is speaking, obviously, to, uh, you know, people are aware to some extent that many Palestinians have emigrated, particularly Palestinian Christians have emigrated in the last hundred years or so. But what I want to show is that even those who have stayed, because of the really radical disjunctures, the radical um, severance that has happened between one locale and another, especially, in fact, in the last 20 years, this has really interfered with the ways in which people come to experience themselves in their landscape, themselves at home, if you like, such that place isn't um, just a thing we take for granted and move around. Place is something we create in dialogue with our own self-formations. This is this draws heavily on the anthropologist Tim Ingold, who was part of my department uh, Aberdeen when I was doing my PhD. And, um, and, and for him, this kind of uh, generative relationship between an environment and a person's self, sense of self is a, is a very, you know, positive, lively picture. He, he did his fieldwork in, in northern Scandinavia among Sami people. And so my kind of reflections on his work as I'm standing, you know, at the checkpoint or at the wall in Bethlehem was, well, what does what does that mean here? And, and clearly the experience of placemaking and self-formation being symbiotic, as Ingold says, um, is incredibly fraught, precisely because the, the, the landscape itself is is carved up and is controlled and circumscribed. People's abilities to take being at home for granted has gone. And that's not just because of the wall and the checkpoint and, and the occupation. Demographic changes have affected the situation in Bethlehem too. So um, traditionally there were seven Hamulas, seven clans in Bethlehem, one Muslim, six Christian. And the kind of relationship between those long established families has emerged really slowly over the centuries and is a, a, a kind of carefully negotiated coexistence uh, which which defines Bethlehem in the eyes of its uh, its old families. Now, the Syriac community mostly, and we might come on to this, uh, arrived at the early part of the 20th century after the genocide in southeast Turkey. Um, but they, to a certain extent, would be identified as the one of the old families, a kind of eighth Hamula, if you like, uh, within Bethlehem. Um, now, in the last 20 years in particular, the demographics of Bethlehem have changed significantly because of in-migration from areas that are more directly impacted by, by violence, so particularly from the South Hebron Hills. People coming in have no experience of this, um, this kind of inter-confessional, inter-familial uh, negotiated coexistence. And that has disrupted, because of the sheer numbers, disrupted the, the the old family's sense of what it means to be Bethlehemite and in Bethlehem. Now, there are overtones of elitism. These old families have traditionally formed the elite in Bethlehem. Um, but that isn't to in any way negate the fact that 
for a lot of people, what it means to be a Bethlehemite in Bethlehem is now something that's highly contested and fraught in a way that it perhaps wasn't 20 or 30 years ago. What is your book's contribution to ecclesiological anthropology? Yeah, this was something that I I, I kind of posited towards the end of the book and then wrote a, a short paper on since. I suppose I was wanting to try and find a way of doing anthropology not of Syriac Orthodox Christians or of Christians, but with them and and to as as great an extent as I could to do it with categories that emerged in dialogue with them that were intelligible to them and were of their own discursive kind of tradition. And this was something I'm I'm very grateful to Johan Rasanayagam, who's also a, an Aberdeen scholar who who worked with uh, Muslims in in Uzbekistan in a similar way, trying to draw on Islamic tradition to. To, to account for his interlocutors' lives. Um, so in a sense, I was trying to get as far as I could towards them and, and their kind of prevailing logics of belonging rather than, you know, sitting with categories that I'd identified in advance, you know, nation, family, ethnos, church, narrowly understood, and, you know, trying to squeeze in, well, this, this is their religious life, this is their political life or, or whatever. And I think, kind of leaning into ecclesiology and I did so quite speculatively I'm very very open to challenge on whether that's the most appropriate category or not but to, to lean into ecclesiologies I think to acknowledge that there is a non-circular non-modern but not necessarily um, dead <laughs> discourse uh, around human sociality that that really gets beyond some of these false oppositions that 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 uh, modernity poses when it comes to social life. Um, and I think this was hoping, I was hoping that talking of an ecclesiological anthropology would enable the reader to kind of wonder whether kinship, uh, Syriac kinship ref refracted through the body of Christ, through the substance of Christ, um, is actually a better way of thinking about Syriac Orthodox Christian belonging one with another um, than perhaps um, some of the kind of categories of, well, is this ethno-religion or is this nationhood or is this kind of some kind of racial narrative? Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done and, and, and I'm very much open to, to kind of critique on, on whether we can, we can go far down that route. But for me, it just held a lot of promise because ecclesiology is such a, a rich discourse um, and it brings in a, a lot of these categories that we sometimes oppose to one another as somewhat more compatible than perhaps we think. In what ways are the ramifications and long-term damage of the SAFO catastrophe still felt today, one century later? What was it like being around Syriac Christians while researching this book concurrently with the centennial anniversary of this tragedy? How is the SAFO remembered presently? How has collective memory of the SAFO evolved? As a first comment, I I was doing my fieldwork primarily in 2011, 2012, so a little bit okay. before the, the the year that's that tends to be thought okay. of as the year of the SAFO 1915. But but to be honest, in other accounts of the SAFO, um, uh, it, it it wasn't linked to that year, um, exclusive of of years before or after. It was really seen as a period from the end of the, the 19th century right up to the establishment of the Turkish state, really. So um, let's backtrack a little bit. What was it? Most of us know a little bit about the Armenian genocide um, and the, the the way in which the Armenian population of, 
uh, Southeast Turkey in particular, or Turkey as a whole, was was uh, you know brutalized, uh, massacred, uh, and expelled. Now, uh, the Syriac community as well as the Greek Christian community in Turkey experienced something similar, um, and concretely, for the Syriac community, the effect was at least as big proportionally as as the Armenian community, as I understand it. It was maybe a third, maybe even a half of the Syriac, Syrian population uh, in Turkey that was killed. Um, so unsurprisingly, it's absolutely central in the accounts of what it means to be Syriac for for, for Syriac Orthodox Christians and, and Syriac Christians belonging to other churches, globally now in, in the Middle East and also in the diaspora. And of course, it's presumably it's it's particularly prominent because it's really people who, who experienced it are well within the living memory of those who I was speaking to, whether it was their parents or grandparents or, or great grandparents. Now, its significance is is very rich and and partly it's because it's seen as really just the latest episode of brutality meted out against Syriac Christians from a, a Syriac Christian perspective. Another key episode would be the rise of the, the, the Ilkhan in Central Asia and the decimation of Syriac Christianity uh, in places like Iraq and Persia and Central Asia uh, seven or so hundred years ago. And equally, people talked um, quite frequently about the, the the Chalcedonian Christian, the imperial Christian persecution of non-Chalcedonians uh, after the uh, after the Council of Chalcedon in four fifty one. Uh, so, so there's a sense in which it's just one more episode, and yet, in most kind of everyday conversations about what it means to be Syriac, people would talk about the loss they that they're parents, grandparents, great-grandparents experienced in Southeast Turkey. Some of these stories were extremely vivid, ex very bloody. There was a lot of sexual violence referred to. Um, and so it goes beyond kind of confirming a sense of persecution and marginalization. It, it, it's, it, it kind of foregrounds this problematic relationship with home that a lot of Syriac Orthodox Christians would express. For many of them, sometimes at least, they would talk about Southeast Turkey as their homeland still, even though it's largely inaccessible to them. Um, and of course, and a collective trauma, it, it creates a sense of unease with what home is supposed to be and, and what use home is it, it, in any case, if, if you, you're not going to be safe there. So it's a kind of central pivot, really, in the way people talked about um, what it meant to be Syriac. Uh, and just as a little aside, it's very interesting that in the Syriac Orthodox Church in Bethlehem, there, there are two curtains. The Syriac Orthodox liturgy proceeds uh, either side of this, this veil that hangs between the haikal or, or temple and, and the congregation. And the older of these two curtains, which dates to the, the establishment of the church in 1927, depicts the, a number of biblical scenes, including the crucifixion um, and the slaughter of the innocents, which, of course, is a, a massacre that occurred, according to scripture, in, the, in, in Bethlehem itself. 
and it struck me that the the way in which that was depicted that the the soldiers perpetrating the massacre were dressed in clothes that were very similar to uh, turn of the 20th century Ottoman attire. And I'm really struck by the fact that every time, actually this old curtain isn't used in every liturgy, but several times a year, as people are remembering the sacrifice of Christ and, and the redemption narrative, you know, with all of the blood that's involved in that within Christian theology, they're also gazing upon this image that looks quite like the experiences that their their forebears endured in Southeast Turkey. And so that raised a number of questions for me about what it means to be a Syriac Christian Eucharistically formed community in the light of things like the Sefo, not only in the light of biblical narratives. On page 127, you quote Amin Ma'aluf's words to the effect that identity is a false friend, a quote-unquote false friend. What is the significance of this observation as regards Bethlehem Syriac Orthodox Christians? Yeah, so Amin Malouf was writing about this kind of two ways of talking about identity, basically. We can talk about identity in terms of an individual's identity, the thing that makes them, you know, analytically distinct, that makes them them through time as a kind of being that, that isn't just an instance of something and then it's something completely different. Next. Um, so what makes them unique? What makes them uh, what makes them them? What makes them different? And then meanwhile, of course, uh, in everyday terms, we can talk about kind of groups, group identities, the kind of things that make groups cohere through time there, if you like, collective biography. So in this case, what makes Syriac or Syriani uh, Christians Syrian rather than, um, you know, Orthodox more generally or Christian more generally? Um, so when refracted through kind of individual's experience, this kind of group identity is almost like the opposite category from, from the one we were talking about with its individual identity, because it's actually about what makes certain individuals to some extent the same as one another. So to make that kind of slightly clearer, it's problematic when we start trying to lump individuals who are making sense of themselves, producing themselves through narratives drawn from different kind of contexts, different resources, even when, you know, really attending to what they say leads us to be, um, I, I would have thought, much more cautious about reading individuals' identities through the lens of, you know, supposed group identities or vice versa. Um, so belonging together can be analytically prior to accounts of how and why they belong together. And, and, and I describe a particular controversy within the book that, that illustrates uh, this, I think, um, there's a there are multiple different accounts of what what it means to be Syriac uh, that that are kind of at work in people's thinking, but usually this this difference these this different way of thinking about being Syriac uh, is largely hidden, um, and it was only in the context of a controversy around authority that these different logics became clear, um, and it, it, in my view these these logics were you know radically different. One was to do with transparency, adherence to, to rules, a kind of legal rational framework for authority. And one was much more personal um, to do with rightful relationships and, and the right connectedness of individuals with this Syriac um, body. And so I think there was always a problem when you would say, well, this individual's identity is really Syriac as opposed to someone who's 
perceived as being slightly less Syriac because their their way of understanding what it means to be Syriac is different. Or as Lauren Leibarger does, um, he whose work I must say I, I found very very informative and very very helpful in the field. But where I depart from him is he posits that there's a kind of typology of Syria of Palestinian Christian identity where you've got Pietists who use religion to escape from engagement with the world. You've got uh, uh, kind of Palestinian nationalists who like to relativize their um, specific sectarian or confessional identity and assert being Palestinian above all. And then you've got your ethno-religionists who, according to Leibarger, um, kind of go the other way and kind of push their Palestinian identity to one side in order to assert being, um, you know, in this case, Syrian. In fact, the same individual may well in a single conversation dart between all of those. Uh, and I felt like kind of trying to posit identity as, you know, there must be some true core which we can exhume by just asking the right questions. Um, and I think as anthropologists, we often are really guilty of this. It's like, well, they say they're this and they say they're that, but what are they really? <laughs> you know, I was quite interested in, in exploring the process in which um, selves were uh, connected, formed, narrated, and articulated within a particular environment. So, so I've got half an eye on that politically significant conversation I was talking about before, where um, you know some are saying, you know, are they really Palestinian, or and others are saying, well, you know, then they're not even a minority because they're exactly the same as their Muslim neighbours. Um, and while that's a, a simplistic version of uh, of those narratives, I think even at their best, these these kind of framings these reductive framings are very very problematic um so so yeah for, for me maluf was just someone i could kind of uh use to illustrate that this the way we talk about identity and what we shoot what we assume about how groups and individuals um relate analytically um is, is extremely problematic and there's a particular western heritage of trying to um isolate one element of a person's uh, individual identity and read them through that rather than seeing this more kind of generative uh, creative process through narrative. What is your book's contribution to the social anthropology of Palestinian culture? Yeah I mean it's po possibly not for me to say what the, <laughs> what the contribution is um, in terms of its significance. I suppose I was influenced by some of the work of people like Glenn Bowman, who had looked really carefully at um, difference in uh, within the Palestinian Christian population in particular. Um, Lauren Leibarger, too, for all my disagreements that I've just mentioned, I think the way in which he brings out the diversity of Palestinian Christian experience is really, really important. I suppose in the background, I'm hoping that it accurately describes a particular effect of what is 110 years, really, of displacement, going back to the Afula affair of 1910, I think it was, um, which has, despite all of the elite political contests between Zionism and you know, Palestinian political representation, rep representatives and factions, has largely left ordinary Palestinians with less ability to thrive and, and be fruitful in their land. So I hope it, it kind of speaks to the diversity, the resilience um, of Palestinians, uh, the importance of not assuming that the key to Palestinian prosperity and freedom is ignoring the differences between them. 
but I also hope it's it's realistic in looking at just how pervasive this displacement and dispossession has been and that it's not something that's going to be solved simply by looking carefully at the enforcement of international law it, it's it's reflected through these incredibly local small micro dynamics that you know can't be can't be wished away through through a, an elite bargain kind of peace deal um so I hope it's, I mean, it is, it is very much a focus on the Syriac Orthodox community who are not representative of Palestinian culture in any way. They're a, 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 they are their own experience. And I'd also be very nervous about even saying that I've represented the whole of Syriac Orthodox culture in Palestine. Um, but I think focusing on, on specific experiences of this greater whole um, is in its own way a contribution to the anthropology of Palestinian culture. The very term Syriac Orthodox Christian contains three very different idea identities or adjectives in it. What conflicts exist between being Christian, being Orthodox, and being Syriac? How, if at all, do the persons you study in your book cope with these tensions? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I I don't know if the tension is between those three terms as much as, say, um, between the way in which Aramean relates to Assyrian or Aramean or Assyrian relates to Palestinian and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose my interlocutors would say, you know, to be Syriani is to be Christian. There are, so of course, Christians that aren't Syriac, but there are not Syriacs who aren't Christians. Um, and, and as for Orthodox, I guess um, in this context, that's relating, they, they identify with, more with the practice, say, of the, the the Greek Orthodox or the Chalcedonian Orthodox churches, than with Latin Catholic Christianity or Protestant Christianity in general. Um, but I think for them, it's more of a statement that um, you know this is an established church within within Palestine, a, a recognised church within Palestine, um, and that kind of institutional establishment is a seal of legitimacy within that kind of uh, sectarian confessional landscape in Palestine. Um, so I, I'm not sure that the, the those terms are specifically in tension with one another. Um, I think when it comes to the tension between being Syriac Aramean, uh, and of course the Aramean thing is really important because it, it brings in this this language. Their liturgical language is Aramaic, and that for them is part of the inheritance they took from the ancient Arameans uh, and then the early church. Um, but this. This relationship between being Syriac Aramean and Palestinian is where the tension can arise if they're both posited as the same kind of nationhood in competition with each other. In fact, as I hope to show, mostly that isn't experienced as a tension, um, although it sometimes is when being Palestinian is unbearably frustrating uh, for whatever reason due to the, the, the many challenges that they, they endure. Um, so I think what I, what I was hoping to show is that where these tensions do arise, wherever they arise, whether it's through these terms that you mentioned or or elsewhere, um, uh, the kind of resolution of this um, has, is always through through narrative, is through drawing on the resources of these different categories in order to begin to tell their own story more effectively. Um, now, sometimes this may be look like it's a narrative that's that's advocating more towards Palestinian nationalism, sometimes more towards this Arameanism. Um, but 
although there probably has been a, a, an increase in the extent to which people are using an Aramean, a, a distinctive Aramean Syriac narrative to account for themselves, it's never quite as linear as that. It's never quite as simple. Um, and sometimes people will, you know, prefer to talk in terms of their being Palestinian, uh, uh, depending on who they're talking to, when they're talking uh, um, to them, in what context, and with reference to what. And it's not simply, I, I read one account of, of Christians uh, in Nablus, for instance, where they, he talks about the kind of, the author talks about the, uh, you know, an official transcript and an unofficial transcript with the implication that what they will first tell you is basically a you know we're, we all get on beautifully and then later they'll they'll actually let on that it's not as simple as that in fact it's even more complex than that i found that actually people were very happy to be quite critical and even uncomfortably critical of their muslim neighbors of palestinian leaders very very early in my relationships with them and then at other times they would be talking in quite the opposite terms and as very um proud palestinians so it, it's it's I guess this, the the tensions are tensions that uh, pertain upon uh, people's ability to to give a robust and effective account of who they are now in this moment, um, and that process is is fraught because I believe of this displacement in situ that so many have experienced. On pages two hundred and two hundred and one. You present and describe a specific altar curtain from 1927. Can you describe the image that you present? What is depicted? What is meant and symbolized? Mm, I may have answered that somewhat already. Um, so you've got a, a large crucifix there, and then you've got very vivid pictures of, of beheaded mothers holding children or behead, beheaded children uh, and mourning mothers, rather. Um, it's uh, it, and the kind of link I make between that that curtain and the liturgy is is through this concept of anamnesis. Anamnesis usually refers to the section of the liturgy in which the death of Christ is recalled. You know, it's it's it means recollection. Um, but in Orthodox theology, when they write about anamnesis, there's there's a sense that it's not simply recollection. It's not just a memorial, but it's actually a participation in an ongoing and eternal drama that that was true at the crucifixion and resur resurrection and remains eternally true and dynamic. At the kind of popular level, people didn't talk in, in those terms, but the ways in which they would sacralize suffering and the way they would think about the uh, the hardships endured by the Syriac community often related quite explicitly to the sufferings of Christ. And my sense was that as they gather in in the Corbon or the Eucharist liturgy, as they experience this recollection of Christ's sacrifice and are at the same time present through the litany and other parts of the liturgical text with Syriac saints, Syriac fathers and mothers, um, with the angels and with with Christ present in the elements, also to be recalling uh, through this depiction of the slaughter of the innocents that that spoke so much of of the the genocide, um, kind of underscored this kind of interrelationship in which being part of this Syriac biography is to carry this suffering with them into their everyday lives, and that's the 
suffering of Christ and the suffering of the Syriac people, and that in a sense, both of them are part of the same redemptive drama. I think there's a fascinating second book to be worked on, probably with a theologian, <laughs> on exactly what that looks like um, and, and what the relationship between the kind of uh, this, this suggestion of the relationship between Syriac suffering and the suffering of Christ actually means. Um, but it was certainly something that, that I found very impactful and very moving um, in worshipping with Syriac Orthodox Christians in that church. Can you say more about the Corbono ceremony? Why do you describe mm. this ritual as a dialogue? Yeah, I mean, dialogue was actually kind of at the the, the centre of my work from the start on this. Um, and I guess there were a number of reasons um, why I thought dialogue was a helpful way of framing it. And so, first of all, the Corbono, as I say, is, is simply the, the Eucharist liturgy which actually has lots of similarities across all expressions of, of the church, uh, certainly all of the liturgical expressions, whether that's, you know, Anglican, Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, and then Coptic, Syriac, Ethiopian Orthodox in the non-Chalcedonian communities. Um, now, the first reason, I guess, would be people would begin uh, by saying they're going to pray. When they're attending the Corbona, they're going to pray. And of course, that's a communicative thing among whatever else it is. It's a it's a communicative thing, prayer. Also, I had um, backed in very much in my mind when I began to explore the Syriac Orthodox community. And actually before that, when I'm looking at Palestinian Christian use of scripture and his, you know, uh, I was always kind of asking of any social moment what the what the dialogue dialogic structure was um, in Bakhtin's terms, you know, who's speaking, whose voices are being echoed in that speech or cited, who's being directly addressed, who are the overhearers, whether they're ratified overhearers that the, the speaker acknowledges um, uh, and wants there, or whether they're not ratified overhearers. So, so, and then of course, there's this wonderful concept in this late life fragment from Bakhtin's diaries of the super addressee, who's this notional, you know, perfect hearer who 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 makes up for the gaps in our in our fallible language by by making communication possible. Even if we speak authentically, then it's as if the super addressee makes that communication effective. And so, within the the corbono, as within any Eucharist, there are some sections which address God in the voice of the people, or specifically in the voice of a priest. Um, then there are sections which do the opposite, address the people in the voice of God. Sometimes it's uh, the people joining their voices to those of the saints. And, and then especially within the Syriac Orthodox um, Corbono, the Lord's Prayer is a, is a really intense moment, um, uniquely, I think, um, because this is when they're able to express in the words of Jesus himself, his, his words, his prayer. Uh, and and often first thing you a Syriac Christian would tell you when they um, introduce themselves is, "Oh, I'm Syriac. We speak the language of Jesus, or, or we pray the Lord's Prayer in the in the language of Jesus." So there's all of these little dialogic structures within uh, the 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 Corbono itself. But then there's also this kind of meta dialogue, for want of a much better word, <laughs> in which the Corbono as a whole is the the kind of the consent of the community to participate in that eternal drama that I was talking about, that redemptive sacrifice of Christ. Um, and I think for the Syriac community in particular, um, 
this is distinctive because of the prominence of language which has been ref refracted through christ refracted christologically if you like um that they're using they're not just taking the body of christ and eating it and incorporating the body of christ but they're actually also voice giving voice to christ they, they they're using christ's being part of the body of christ to express through their breath the very tongue of jesus if you like um and they're doing that in, you know, experiencing that in the presence of Syriac saints, in the presence of the Syriac story depicted on that curtain, and um, as part of this one Syriac body with one kind of biography through time. So I guess coming back to your question, so why do I describe it as a, a dialogue rather than, or and, and actually in other places simply as prayer, going back to my interlocutor's preferred word for it, I guess I just wanted to hold at arm's length any accounts of the Corbono that that kind of categorize it simply as ritual as if we know what that is. And, and particularly, I think there's a risk when talking of ritual that it's subordinate to some extent in our in our minds, in our analysis to, you know, real everyday social life. So some scholars might write of ritual as, you know, encoding social meanings that enable the community to persist through time, that, you know, shape the community in the present, in the present, or they might focus on how the multivalence of ritual forms, thinking, you know, a lot of the cognitive anthropology on ritual looks at how different forms within ritual can mean a million different things. And thereby these enable a creative re-engagement with the world um, through these ritual forms. And, and of course, the meanings will change from one generation to the next, from one individual to the next. Um, and it works by impacting, you know, bodies and brains in particular ways. And 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 Roy Rappaport's work on on ritual, I think, was really helpful for me in that respect. So I think there's value in this kind of world of ritual anthropology or anthropology of ritual. But the danger, as I say, is in both of those kind of broad approaches, there can be this kind of subordinating, well, this this kind of separating ritual off from the rest of social life, such that it stands somewhat apart. Um, and, and these formalized moments, these ritualized moments are, are kind of contrasted to real everyday social life, which which happens, as it were, outside of the ritual moment. And, and I think that actually to say that it's real social life that matters and these rituals are, are ways of reading it or informing it or shaping it is something I can't accept. And I don't think my interlocutors in the Syriac community in Bethlehem would accept. For them, the Corbono is part of social life it's part of their wider everyday dialogue with uh, being with the syriac body of which they're part with god with with their syriac ancestors and and with the story that they tell of being syriac so clearly the corbono is recognizable as ritual but again it's about taking that category and putting it to one side for a bit to try to hear more clearly what my interlocutors say about what they're doing rather than simply trying to squeeze it into a category that I've already got ready uh, on the shelf. What does your book teach us about hospitality? While researching this book, how did you experience hospitality among Syriac Orthodox Christians? How did your experience of hospitality contribute to progress in your own scholarly, conceptual understanding of hospitality vis-a-vis -vis contemporary theorists who have attempted to define this concept? Well, yeah, let's begin with the, the kind of face value of hospitality. I think anyone who's spent time in in the Eastern Mediterranean will have uh, enjoyed hospitality, probably to the, the to breaking point, as I certainly did with uh, with people in, in Bethlehem. Uh, they were 
very generous to me and, and what, although I would say it was very interesting how my relationship with those who were extending hospitality to me proceeded quite gradually to it almost like to I was definitely at arm's length as a uh, a visitor for some time with the exception of one or two families that you know engaged with me a bit more in, in, in intentionally and then it kind of came to a tipping point when when an elder in the community announced very loudly in the narthex in the kind of um the porch of the church um that i was one of them now and that my blood was was syrian and and there was no difference between us and and, and literally thereafter people started to to talk to third parties of me as this is mark he's english but he's syrian and this would confuse them as much as me um, because nothing from my perspective had changed. You know, I just I just went to the liturgy. I participated and I tried to find out as much as I could about their work. So clearly there was that kind of the, the hospital, everyday hospitality in people's homes, which was lavish as, as it always is in the Middle East. Um, there was this kind of broader hospitality within the Syriac community uh, where I went from kind of being visited to, a you know, or, as it were, part of the family brother, perhaps. Um, and then the, the category of hospitality, again, as something that's so important to my interlocutors, I, I began to think about how it might be useful in the way I wrote up my experience of their lives. And um, uh, there's a paper by Candea and Dacol which talks about hospitality in ethnography and how, as, a, as an ethnographer who's done you know, typical extended field work, participant observation in a particular context, there's this unique transition from guest to host. So you begin as a as a guest with all of the risks that that involves, that kind of arriving at somebody else's threshold and, and asking to some extent to be hosted. And then as the author of that experience, you then kind of play host to their lives within your ethnographic text, within, in my case, this book. And so arguably, like how we manage the movement from guest to host is is like is a, a good test, I think, of of ethnography. It has has that movement been accounted for generously, rigorously. And of course, you know, like as Latour would point out, this kind of knowledge is not a knowledge of detachment. It's not a, a, a an arm's length knowledge, which he would link with with scientific knowledge. It's actually more akin to a kind of religious knowledge, which is a drawing near to something um, it, with all of the kind of risks that that drawing near um, entails. So like participant observation and and fieldwork embodies this this kind of paradigm of, of hospitality. We begin with uh, not with uh, simply our research question, but but Prior to that, we begin with being together in the world with those who we want to uh, engage or whom we're researching. And, and we express that being together, that co-subjectivity, when we arrive at the threshold, uh, when we kind of arrive in the field, as it were. And how do we then preserve that co-subjectivity when we write those encounters up? And I think... It, we can part of that is making sure that what we write is never a final word it's never like this is the definitive account of such and such a people's lives uh, but also it, it invites that kind of right of reply from the the people whose lives you've written but above all it's this, this kind of generous attentiveness 
to the categories that they use to make sense of their world, to their experiences, and perhaps also allowing the way they think and talk about being human to impact the way in which I go away and think about being human as well. It's impossible to get that right, I think, to, to absolutely nail that and do it perfectly. But I think this is the kind of knowledge production we're involved in, and it's an exciting and rich and very stimulating one. What is distinctive about the Syriac Orthodox Church's relationship with the Bible? Yeah, it's an incredibly interesting question. I suppose that's one of the questions that I began with. I wouldn't want to speak for the Syriac Orthodox um, Church as a, as a you know international, transnational institution. Um, so I guess just a few observations. Um, first of all, that even within Bethlehem, people relate to the Bible differently. There are people that, when it comes to interpretation, for instance, would have a very literalist view, others that would have a very allegorical, more typically orthodox view of uh, biblical passages. But that's not the most distinctive thing about the way they relate to the Bible. I think two things were most striking to me, although bear in mind that I'm coming from an evangelical Protestant upbringing, so these are more likely to be striking to me than, say, to potentially even um, a Western Roman Catholic. Um, the engagement with material, beautiful codexes, beautiful books, beautiful Bibles, at the end of every service, almost everyone in the church will go up and kiss the Bible. Um, and that kind of in interaction with the Bible as a as a physical, almost as an icon, is something that that's quite striking. Now, I don't think that's different from say how Greek Orthodox Christians might engage with with the Bible. I think perhaps what is more distinctive is within Eastern Christianity, actually, arguably within Islam as well. The the, the within the Middle East, the, the priority of oration over writing is is really significant so um you know in arabic this idea of uh, as as reading is, is really linked to recitation rather than you know reading silently that's a definitely seems to be a second best and so within the syriac liturgy biblical texts are part of a a, a two-hour chant effectively and how syriac christians give voice to the bible is as significant as what they make of what it means again that's a generalization there are some for whom it's much more analytical and distanced and there are there's probably a whole spectrum um of of different interactions with scripture but this importance of oration of singing of chanting creates i think a very uh, intense relationship with the text where it's a first person relationship rather than a a kind of third person analytical relationship it's not primarily the important thing is not what do i think this text means what's my opinion of this text it's simply about giving life to this text through performance and of course an individual will have opinions about it beliefs about it interpretations of it but that willingness to as it were submit to scripture is expressed through performance, through the utterance, through the oration, as much as through interpretation. And I think, you know, the Lord's Prayer is an extreme example of, of just how significant oration can be. That This is the language of Jesus they're using. It's a, you know, a biblical language. Um, and therefore, it's a language that they see as part of their kind of unique 
custodianship for the church. They have the language of Jesus. The whole church either appreciates or should appreciate that that's a unique heritage and a, and a unique um, gift to their community. Um, so then my research kind of moved off the question of how they use the Bible, because I, two reasons. One, I felt like my language skills weren't really good enough to, to delve deeply into the way in which scripture appeared in vernacular accounts of their um, uh, their lives more broadly, and particularly their Christian devotional lives. Uh, but also I just felt that there was a much broader question about how all of this, the use of scripture, liturgy, ritual, um, self-formation, Palestinian nationalism, experience of the occupation and so on, how all of these things interrelated. Um, and so I kind of zoomed out by with with, uh, with that kind of analytical frame and zoomed in on the Syriac community um, more specifically to make it manageable. How does your book advance our understanding of authority? What are the different forms that authority takes among Syrian Christians? What are the different mean meanings of authority in the Syriac Orthodox Church? Mm. I alluded to this a little bit before um, because I found authority was a key to understanding much more than simply power relations. But I suppose I was thinking of authority as like how uh, how do we understand how different people um, account for the right of a particular individual or particular actor to speak for them, to speak for their community, to speak for others. Um, and when we come to understand how people account for the authority that inheres in a particular individual or institution, we get, get, I think, a bit of an understanding of how more broadly they understand the rightful way of a community belonging together. Um, so I, I give a, a quote at length, a sermon from the priest of Unabutras, who's a, a man I really like and respect, who was very much in the eye of the storm in 2011 around um, who should ultimately be in charge of the community vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian Authority and so on. Um, and he defended himself incredibly robustly through um, talking about, uh, he, he, he gave a sermon on the sons of Korah um, from the Torah in which, you know, people who weren't priests illegitimately offered incense in place of the, the of, of Aaron and the Levitical priest and um, were consequently swallowed up by uh, the land through God's wrath, and um, and this you know took everybody um, aback, including myself, because Abuna Butcher is a very mild-mannered man, very very gentle, and this wasn't kind of the, the tone of sermon I was expected to hear from him. Um, but what I identified in his sermon was that for him, what mattered was this rightful connection between all between all of those things I mentioned in answer to your last question, between scripture, between the canon more broadly, in, including the liturgical canon, between the church institution, between people, lay people, priests. And, and, and so what matters there is not, you know, adherence to a, a legal code as much as or, you know, even transparency around adherence to a legal code, but about rightful relationship so so i began to feel like contests over authority can lead us to see how these different ways of making sense of how a community like the syriac population in bethlehem or the, the, the syriac body as i talk about it um persists through time and coheres um uh, and, I, and i think there's a, an awful lot more to say around authority in terms of um the, the, the relationship of that kind of 
quite benign account of authority and actual power relations and the pursuit of power and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I felt like this beginning by thinking, how does someone author the the right to speak on behalf of um, uh, the community was a really telling uh, way of accounting for identity without relying on this this very problematic identity category. I hope that answers your question. Can you tell us about the psalm journey? What does it mean and how is it observed? Can you interpret it for us? Yeah, sure. So the, the psalm journey was actually a, a, a method I borrowed from someone else's um, PhD research when I was an undergraduate I was actually a guinea pig in his uh, in his PhD research it was uh, a, a man called Fergus Macdonald who who was actually moderator of the Freekirk the Freekirk of Scotland um, a, a couple of times and his research was obviously informed by it, it, the Freekirk of Scotland it has psalms very much at the centre of its 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 worship life, um, but also its identity. For until this century, the um, the Freekirk only used unaccompanied psalms in their worship. Although that's changed now, um, and he was exploring how, because of this, the, the very unique dialogic structure of psalms, sometimes really you know raging at God, at other times resting in God, sometimes. Um, kind of addressing the space that God appears to have left in the cosmos by not being there. Um, he he thought that that psalms might be particularly resonant for people of uh, my generation. I was a young person then, um, so Gen Z, I think think we were, um, and uh, because of our suspicion of authority and suspicion of monologue and so on and so forth. Anyway. I found that a very interesting experience um, when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And I thought perhaps I could do something similar with Syriac Orthodox Christians. And actually, remarkably, the priest was OK with me doing that. I'd asked a few people whether they thought I could do something like this with young people in the in the Syriac church. And they said, well, you better ask, ask Abuna Boutros. And he was delighted with um, young people to engage with scripture. Very much young people would engage primarily with the scouts. Um, or as deacons in the church. But it, it, beyond that, um, there wasn't really a kind of Bible study, if you like. Um, so what I tried to do was give a different psalm each week, which people would go away and read, listen to um, liturgical chant versions or contemporary um, pop versions in Arabic, Syriac, English sometimes. And then I would try to see how through the conversation about what these psalms meant to them and their kind of subjective experience of these psalms, whether I could get a sense on of exactly how scripture um, is kind of woven into their everyday experience as Syri Syriac Christians. And certainly it was helpful because to a certain extent it corroborated that there is this, broadly this difference between those for whom understanding rightful authority, including canonical authority, um, depends on accurate interpretation and this kind of distancing um, epistemology of, of, of scripture. And then those for whom the kind of entering into it, the performance of it, the aesthetics of it are, are all part of its rightness. Um, so, so for me, it was a way of, <laughs> in kind of bold terms, it was a, uh, it was a focus group methodology, which complemented the participant observation. 
Um, but I think it was something that I, I, I found really enriching as well, just in terms of shaping the relationships I had with Syriac Orthodox young people um, and getting a sense of how they experienced this displacement in situ predicament. And that seemed so decisive for, for Syriac Christians at that time. What demographic trends are impacting the Syrian Orthodox Church? Do local Syriac Orthodox Christians feel pessimistic or optimistic about the future of these trends? Can you comment in particular on the causes and consequences of emigration among Bethlehem Syriac Christian community? What other demographic trends are causes of concern separate from and in addition to emigration? Mm. Yes, yeah, so there's two frames for this. There's the broader kind of Palestinian territories demographic situation and then the Bethlehem one, which is a, in a sense an extreme case of the former. Um, the So first of all, the, the Syriac Christian population in Bethlehem is numerically quite stable. There are a, a, a few more in uh, 2017 when I was last there than there were when I was doing my field work. Um, but this is in the context of very rapid and significant proportional decline due to different fertility rates and due to a higher proportion of Christian emigration than Muslim emigration. Now, um, that actually hasn't been as, as widespread in the Syriac population, um, partly because the Syriac community didn't make some, uh, uh, didn't comprise as much of the, the Palestinian elite. Um, Christians, from the old families were were very much privileged in you know in the previous um the, the kind of status quo if you like so the mayor of bethlehem has to be um christian the vice mayor the deputy mayor has to be christian and um, as in some other cities within palestine um and this is really a a kind of hangover from when christians were primarily the landowners and and uh, disproportionately powerful and those who have more means would typically be more inclined to leave. And they're also more vulnerable to um, to land theft. And land theft has become a very significant factor in in uh, Area A, the kind of Palestinian authority controlled areas um, of, of the West Bank. So there's that kind of broader situation. Um, just some figures. Ten, the, uh, in 1948, I believe 10% of the Palestinian population was Christian. Now it's around two percent, um, and, and around three percent of that two percent are Syriac Orthodox. So it's it's a very small community, though much larger than it was 150 years ago before the um, in migration from Southeast Turkey. So there's that bigger picture. More locally, as I talked about before, the um, local demographic changes have been huge. Uh, the the seven old families plus the Syriacs are no longer a majority. They still are disproportionately represented in terms of land ownership. Um, so they still kind of comprise an elite, but that's as much a source of grievance for those who've moved in as anything. Um, and you certainly can't take for granted now that there's a respect for the, the old norms, whether there should be or, or, there, or, or not is, um, is not really for me to say. But I think that local migration is probably the bigger destabilizing factor than the, the the wider kind of emigration picture however when you put the two things together and you put the occupation together the lack of opportunities the economic issues um land theft 
and then this local displacement, the fact that there's this well-established diaspora, Syriac Christian diaspora in Sweden in particular, other parts of Europe and North America, uh, means that there's a there's the 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 prospect of emigration is not fanciful. So they live in what Hassan Hajj calls the diasporic condition, which finds it hard to be at home anywhere. So so that's a large the, the kind of a very quick summary of of how demographic changes have impinged upon individuals' everyday lives, expectations and hopes. How does the Syriac Orthodox Church navigate through tensions and between secularism and religion? What are some examples? How do they play out in family life, church affairs, and social relationships? Mm. Yeah, interesting. So there was a, a an account I gave, I think, in in the book. Excuse me for for forgetting whether it was in this book or in a in a, another paper I wrote, but where there was a um, a divorce uh, underway, and none of the parties, none of the families, wanted the marriage to continue, but because of the decisive role of the church hierarchy in in allowing for, for divorce within the kind of legal framework of, of Israel and Palestinian territories. This was being dragged out through um, through church courts and so on. Um, so I think the first thing to say is that within Palestine, there's not a, a an obvious secular domain and religious domain. They can't ease it. That kind of opposition can't be taken for granted, there's no clearly secular public or or civic space in which, you know, nobody, um, which you can kind of just be interacted with as an individual without any um, perceived affiliations or associations or connections. The Ta'efa, the, the confessional community, is absolutely central in family life, communal life, and and that whole controversy I talked about with Abu Nabutros and the 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 Syriac Jamaiya, the the kind of social association, was basically around how the Taifa should be represented vis-a-vis -vis the government. Now, of course, on the other hand, there are committed secularists who hate that this is the reality, but that is the reality. And what I try to do is portray that there's a contest between different imaginaries within the Syriac Orthodox community. So one of these imaginaries thinks of the church as you know as it were in its place within society as a whole uh, really as per the kind of modern post-reformation post-westphalia view of uh, the, the the rightful place of to some extent private religion and that's probably the, the conception that we're most familiar with and it's certainly there within some of the syriac um, narratives i attended to um, but then this other one, which I simply call orthodox, um, kind of understands that the, the the rightful connection of selves with others in relation to the Christian Syriac body of Christ as mediated by the, the church office bearers, bearers. This is really how society should be. It's it's a it's a kind of domestic being Syriac is a, dom a domestic <laughs> space within Palestinian society. It's not part of the kind of civic square it's not a place where individuals just interact because they believe certain things and want to associate in a certain way so there are moves obviously within certain parts of, of Palestinian society to secularize um, and there are you know explicitly secular factions and political parties but the context is starting from such a different relationship between the civic and the 
the, the, the domestic, the public and the private, that to, to even talk of those as secular in a kind of classic liberal way would be misleading, I think. Just how do Syriac Orthodox Christians experience anxiety? What manifestations of anxiety predominate among Syriac Orthodox Christians? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the specific causes of anxiety, if you like, in the everyday are, above all, livelihoods related. Um, the, the Palestinian economy clearly is is not in a great place. It certainly wasn't 2011, 2012. The desperation to find work, especially work in Jerusalem, which is not easy because of the kind of complexity of getting permits, but where pay is much better. The broader sense, I think, of losing their landscape is something that's often alluded to rather than talked about explicitly, although some would. Um, access to um, Abu Ghanayim, Jabal Abu Ghanayim, which is now the hill upon which Harhoma settlement is built, or to Al-Mahrur, which is a kind of rural area, and Kremizan to the to the west of, of Bejala. These caused anxiety. Um, and then anything related to movement was uh, was a source of anxiety. You know, whether I was traveling to Ramallah through the container checkpoint um, or having to go into Jerusalem or certain members of the family having permits and others not having permits and this kind of thing. Now, actually, you could say that this is a, a rather privileged experience of anxiety compared to, say, if you spoke to people living the Haitia camp or some of the other camps, even within Bethlehem, where night raids, incarcerations, um, uh, you know, hot violence, as it were, was a much more everyday experience. And and people lived hundreds of metres, no more, from, from this camp. But within, you know, I think it's Bart Cartwright who writes about it as being a discrete social world. And that is certainly the case. But I wouldn't want to underplay the, the kind of anxiety that manifests itself in, in Syriac Orthodox Christian Bethlehemite accounts of, of their experience. And that's where I think uh, thinking of this displacement in situ is, the, is, is, is so important to my analysis. It's, it's so much related to the relationship with place. Which is already was, has always been fraught, really, for the Syriac Orthodox community, because you know where is home? Is it Southeast Turkey? Is it Palestine? The way in which living so close to where Jesus was born, you know, in the same town, and he was an Aramaic speaker, so he, in in some of their 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 testimonies, was he was Syriac, really. You know, this is a kind of way of resolving that tension, but it's a tension nonetheless. And then you add that to all of this other shared kind of economic, political anxiety uh, that that everybody in in the area experience and 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 so yes anxiety specifically displacement in situ is a, is an experience that manifests itself in almost every account of movement dwelling economic activity work you know hopes for the future it's it's as if the the wall is very much in people's minds as well as in the landscape can you comment on the church of the nativity's significance to Syriac Orthodox Christians, what are the characteristics of ecumenical cooperation with other churches in maintaining and sharing the site? Well, yeah, if if we were to talk about ecumenical cooperation to some of my interlocutors, they would probably begin with a with a big sigh. Um, so let's begin with the Church of the Nativity because this is a slightly more positive story. The Syriac um, 
church itself, the Church of St Mary, was is is about five hundred meters away from the Church of the Nativity. Um, you go coming out of the Church of the Nativity, you just cross Manger Square, walk past the Mosque of Olmar, and then up some steps, um, past a few souvenir shops, up some steps, and uh, the Church of St Mary is on the on the right there. Um, so I kind of hinted at this before. If when this community arrived, although there had been a tiny kind of Aramaic speaking, liturgically using Aramaic population in in Jerusalem um, prior to the, the genocide, really it was only at the end of the 19th century that this community grew. They were incomers, they were refugees, and people would talk about their parents receiving abuse for being refugees from the old Bethlehemite families. Um, and yet they were able to say, see this town which is built around the church of nativity, around the incarnation of God in Christ. That incarnation of God used our language. We are, in a sense, indigenous because of that connection in a way that even those who consider themselves true Bethlehemites can't claim to be. So that kind of connection was a major qualification of their sense of outsideness now in the everyday and this kind of comes into your um your next question about ecumenical cooperation or otherwise being able to use the church and the nativity twice a year is both a, a stamp of their legitimacy in the eyes of the status quo initially with the, the ottoman authorities then the british then the jordanians and israelis but it's also a snub because they're only allowed to use it twice a year and only then under the auspices of the Armenian Orthodox Church that maintain the chapel in which they worship. So, you know, people, if you ask them about their the, the, the extent of cooperation with um, other churches, in general in Palestine, especially outside of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the churches at an everyday level get on really well christians are a small minority and they they have relatively good relations but this maintenance of the the great holy sites is such a bugbear because of the different rights so minutely prescribed in the status quo such that one church has one say the greek orthodox maintain uh, all of the church of nativity except the armenian chapel um and the the grotto which is kind of shared downstairs but woe betide the photographer who was taking pictures of the Syriac liturgy at Christmas when he stood on the step to take a photo of the Syriac liturgy underway because that step was not part of their rights. <laughs> okay, that's a Greek Orthodox step. And people told me of a situation where in past years, the, you know, the Greek Orthodox would put a chair in the middle of the grotto and and this created problems because the, the Syriac Orthodox worshippers would be crammed in there, couldn't touch this chair because it was a Greek Orthodox chair. And so, so a <clears throat> slightly more boisterous Syriac Orthodox would smash the chair and then there would be great fights between the the uh, the church leaders because they, you know, their, their rights were being violated. Now, all of this is as to the to the kind of ears of my most of my Syriac interlocutors, especially to Abuna Boutros, it's as preposterous as it is to us, but it's also very sad to them. Abuna Boutros uh, would sigh and say, this kind of thing brings us into disrepute. It, it makes us a laughing stock. You know, 
our Muslim neighbours see this and they shake their heads and laugh. Why on earth are Christians who are supposedly all followers of Jesus behaving like this? Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's not a happy picture. I don't know. I can't say whether it's improved in recent years. I think there have been partly because of the broader context where you know we've got these initiatives like the Kairos Palestine document and, and so on, where where the church hierarchies are feeling like they very much have to come together to make joint statements on things. Um that there there may be a, a kind of knock-on positive effect when it comes to the, the the custodianship of the holy sites. But still, you know, this there's a kind of, the, the the way in which the, the holy sites are maintained and, and looked after is is so obviously a representation of relationships that have broken down through the allocation of power and responsibilities over centuries it's it's a fascinating history it's a it's a really interesting you know, for instance what happened to the georgian church that used to maintain Marsaba monastery of, of all sorts of, of of all the you know very greek places within within palestine but um, from a from a Christian perspective, so for my interlocutors in particular, the Syriac Orthodox who I would spend time with, the way in which the church leaders interrelated over the custodianship of the holy sites was an embarrassment. What are some examples of customs, rituals, and traditions that are unique and distinct among Syriac Orthodox Christians vis-a-vis -vis other branches of Orthodox Christianity? Mm. Can you shed light of, on practices among Syrian Orthodox Christians that are different from those practiced by Armenian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and or Greek Orthodox Christians? Yeah, I have to be slightly tentative here because I've not done kind of a comparative study. So there will be some things that are shared. So for instance, I know within the non-Chalcedonian churches, so these are those who were declared heretical in 451 because of their understanding of Christ having a, a single new human and divine nature rather than two separate natures um they some of their kind of forms are preserved so they they use things like the marvase as it is in syriac which are these kind of fans which are waved at, at instances through the liturgy and are supposed to evoke the presence of the saints and angels with the worshippers in 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 the liturgy um so that you wouldn't get in the greek orthodox church for instance or, or certainly not in western um rites um uh, the processional in the syriac church now i don't know how this relates to say the armenian church or the ethiopian church but certainly in the syriac church instead of having a processional through the body of the church through the people the processional basically is just a circumambulation of the the altar the the, the heikel um and I read one account of this that says that that's because after they were marginalized by imperial Christianity, they were in such small buildings that they they there was a liturgical need to process, but there was no space in which to do it. So they walked around the altar. Um, now, today, it, it has acquired um, certainly more, um, if you like, holy meanings than than that but um but that's that's a quite a distinctive feature one other thing i would note is the prostration during lent um i think this is 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 a distinctively syriac um practice i don't know whether the copts do it as well but they have um throughout the 40-day fast ahead of easter 
they will gather to recite psalms and they engage in 40 full prostrations before the altar as they recite um, a liturgical uh, hymn. A and there are some uh, people who theorize that the, the Islamic prostration in prayer borrows from this uh, pre-existing Syriac um, use of prostration in prayer, which which is much rarer in other Christian traditions to the point of being pretty much non-existent in, say, Protestant uh, traditions, except when there's an ordination service within the Anglican Church. Um, so those are some small things. And I think probably the, the biggest thing, which I've mentioned before, as a distinctive is this place of the lord's prayer the, the, the place in which kind of eucharistic theology language ideology and everyday ritual performance kind of come together to make the, the lord's prayer a, a particularly intense moment within the eucharistic liturgy in a way that it's just not in in other church contexts certainly the epiclesis the, the descent of the holy spirit upon the elements is an intense moment as it is within um all liturgical traditions i presume um but but for the lord's prayer to be such a unifying dynamic kind of affective moment within the liturgy i think is something that in my experience of all of these other traditions which is much more superficial than of the syriac church um does seem to me to be unique on page 123 you present three different terms predicament dilemma and crisis of identity how do these concepts overlap how do they differ from one another can you comment on the meanings of these concepts and their applicability to syriac practice yeah uh, so in in a sense these were terms that i had borrowed so i think it's cartwright that talks about um dilemmas uh Leibarger that talks about predicament um and in a sense, my contribution is this displacement in situ um, category. Um, the 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 overlap is is in terms of the relationship again of Palestinian to Syriac to Bethlehemite to refugee to to old family or or you know are we true Bethlehemites or incomers and so on in the context of this much more radical pervasive um, carving up of of the land and their landscape in in recent years. Um, so uh, I, I guess one of the issues I have with all of these predicament, dilemma, and crisis of identity, actually they're all incredibly useful, um, but they, they're, they're kind of presented as, I suppose, psychological experiences, relational only to other people. Whereas I think this displacement in situ thing kind of places people more thoroughly in their environment. Um, the kind of changes in the environment have been less prominent in some of these accounts around you know talking about people's predicaments and dilemmas than in in my account and i think i've been very much informed by this again this ingoldian view of place and self as of pro, uh, place and self as products of one another um which has become kind of distinctive in the way i've thought about those predicaments dilemmas crises of identity but I, what i would say is that when we talk about say um a crisis of identity <laughs> This this isn't all this. It can be slightly dangerous, I suppose, because people will immediately assume that it's one thing or another. Is it? Are they really Palestinian? Are they simply Arab Christians? As you know, some um, members of the Knesset, the Israeli Knesset, would want to talk about them, and indeed some um, Christian leaders in Israel. Um, is it more to do with the relationship of 
themselves vis-a-vis the diaspora uh, because of the diasporic condition that we talked about before? Um, Has it more to do with being Aramaic as opposed to a Syrian? All of these things are relevant and all of them are part of it, but these are only relevant because of the experience of loss, of displacement in situ that they have um, due to kind of the changes in their material conditions. If, If it was possible to dwell fully, fruitfully, safely in their homes and in their homeland to move about it, you know, innocently, freely, then the predicament and dilemma and crisis would fade into the background for most people. Um, That's what I would be pretty confident in asserting in any case. How did you meet the various Abuna figures that you present in your book? Can you describe their biographies and personalities? Mm. What were your relationships like with them? Well, the the Abuna I spent most time with is Abuna Boutros, the parish priest. So so, uh, ordained men in the Syriac Orthodox Church, priests uh, have to be married and are then uh, usually assigned to a parish for life. Um, Archbishops, a kind of progression through the church is usually reserved to monks who are celibate. So the kind of main abuna in the in the in the book is Abuna Butros, who I've talked about already. He's the first Bethlehem-born priest um, for the Bethlehem Syriac community. His predecessor, Abuna Yaqub, who I never met, but actually died in the uh, in the period in which I was living in Bethlehem. I'd been advised as soon as Abuna Yaqub gets better, you must go and speak to him about Syriac history. And I never had that chance, sadly, because he passed away. Um, and I attended his funeral, which was a, a huge event with an open coffin procession through through Bethlehem. They they do this for the funeral of a priest. They take the coffin and drive it hard against the wall of the church um, in each corner of the church. It's a, a remarkable event. Um, and I think partly because I was able to attend that, I was very conscious of Abuna Yaqub's kind of presence within the community and memory. Um, and I think that possibly disadvantaged Abuna Boutros to a certain extent. People had grown up with Abuna Boutros, whereas Abuna Yaqub had, in most people's experience, always been there. You know, and and also he wasn't born in. Nobody spent their childhood with Abuna Yaqub, whereas Abuna Boutros, um, indeed, grew up with a lot of the people he was he was leading. And I, I imagine that's. Uh, not easy, not straightforward when you uh, are leading a community in the way that is required of you within the sectarian context of Bethlehem. Um, I got on with Abuna Boutros incredibly well. He was very generous to me in terms of time, being able to, to uh, talk to me about my analytical questions. And he he also kind of took on a pastoral role uh, for me as well, advising me on um kind of my life, <laughs> um, as, as was his a kind of reflection of the fact that I was now part of the community as opposed to um, simply a, a distanced researcher asking questions. So that was very flattering and, and really great. Um, and I think it, it made it very delicate for me when I was trying to write up the controversy over um, authority that we've talked about, because um, I obviously don't know anything than other than what I was what I was told and what I observed um and so I'm I'm very keen not to kind of sit in judgment over anybody um and I think that that I've attempted in the book to just make sure that that chapter um 
yields what's useful around understanding people's different conceptions of authority and so on, um, rather than trying to be an <laughs> investigative journalistic piece. And then um, the other clerics I engaged with, Abuna Boulos, who at that point um, was a relatively young, recently um, ordained monk, who's now uh, quite a social media figure within, <laughs> within the kind of Palestinian Christian world. He's an excellent calligrapher in the Syriac. Um, wow. And uh, and 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 enjoys you know recording liturgical chant as well. Um, so he's uh, he's now based at St Mark's in Jerusalem with Abuna's uh, Mushi and and Shimon, um, who I spend a little bit of time with, especially in the latter part of 2012 when I went back to to do some uh, spend some time at St Mark's Monastery in in Jerusalem, um, and then briefly there was Abuna Basum as well, who was a relative of one of the Bethlehem Syriacs, who so was a Bethlehem Syriac himself. But had been ordained and uh, posted to a parish. I can't remember whether it was in Syria or or Lebanon, um, but who didn't live in Palestine, but would occasionally visit um, his his hometown. So yeah, it was. Um, I guess in a small community, it's it's easier to have good access to to the, the hierarchy, and um, and I, I certainly was welcomed by Abuna Boutras and, and remained very grateful to him for that, um, as well as to the other Abunas who I spent time with. What does your book teach us about self-articulation? How do Palestinian Syriac Christians engage in self-articulation? Yeah, so this relates back, I think, to the idea of narrative as being something we use to perceive and navigate place. Um, and our place within that place, our place within the environment. Um, the idea that selfhood is being kind of created in dialogue with specific environments. So articula articulation, self-articulation here was helpful to me, I thought, because of its dual meanings, really, which come together in, in the way I was using it. Articulation in terms of telling, speaking, narrating uh, one's own life. Um, uh, and articulation also as a process of connecting, uh, articulating one thing to another. So in this case, various motifs or threads from Syriac uh, or Palestinian or Christian narrative resources in order to make sense of oneself um, therein. So self-articulation you know, uses as a way of foregrounding the connective properties of narrative. Three. So how do Syriac Orthodox Christians navigate the conflict between defining themselves as Arab, defining themselves as Syrian and defining themselves as Palestinian? Yeah, this is a, a great question. So I went into the field thinking in terms of um, Lauren Leibarger's typology of identity or orientation. So, you know, pietists who would emphasize the kind of Christian devotional part of their identities, um, the Palestinian nationalists who would kind of gloss the differences and, and accentuate the commonality between Palestinians of different professional identifications, and then those who would assert their being Syriani, which, which could be taken as Aramaic or Assyrian or, or, or some combination of the above um, as a kind of ethno-religious diversity in opposition to being Palestinian or Arab. Some would explicitly say we are not Arab, but we are Palestinian. Um, some in certain dialogues would say, um, I'm not Palestinian, I'm Syriani. Um, 
but I remember, I think it's really important to not view this as like a typology in which we can just neatly fit individuals or this person is this and this person is that. Um, I think that that kind of typology that Leibarga uses is useful as a way of sorting out different narratives, um, different ways of navigating the conflict, as you as you so kind of appropriately put it in your in your question. But there's one anecdote that I think is very helpful in illuminating this. We, I was talking to Abu Daoud, who's this interlocutor that I quote at length in one chapter. And he, we were, I was kind of asking him, what well, so what does it mean to be Syriani? What 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 makes one person Syriac and the next person not Syriac? Someone told me that you're not Arabs. And he said, well, we are Arabs. We are the mother of the Arabs. <laughs> and and I found that really interesting because he's, he's at the same time asserting something distinctive about being Syriac. We're older than any sense of being Arab Palestinians. That's a new kind of identity. We're Aramaeans. We're the mother of the Arabs. But in that sense, we're intimately connected to the Arabs in a way that doesn't truck with any negation that those who would want to divide us from our Palestinian brothers and sisters uh, would maybe want us to. So whereas there are certainly those, especially within uh, certain Christian populations within within Israel, who are saying, you know, that Christians and uh, Palestinian Christians are, or rather Christians in Israel and the occupied territories are not Palestinian and they're not Arab. That was a rare perspective within uh, the community I was researching. This kind of way of saying, we are intimately connected to this Arab population of which we are part. In fact, if we're not Arab, we're only not Arab in so much as we are a parent of the Arab population. And in fact, he added, we are the mother of the Arabs and of the Jews. Uh, so it was like this sense of we really belong here. You know, this contest between Jews and Arabs for the land is is something that actually we should have priority in, despite being a small and and um, in migrant population. Can you comment on the history and sociology of Arameanism among Syriac Orthodox Christians in Bethlehem? Yes, a little bit. Now, um, I would say this isn't my, the kind of history of Arameanism um, isn't my forte, um, uh, but there's a really interesting conflict I've alluded to before in the diaspora especially between those who identify as being Assyrian and those who identify as being Aramean. Now I should start by saying that in Bethlehem this kind of difference wasn't wasn't really an issue. People would use the two interchangeably. Um, most of the kind of visual material culture was drawn from the Arameanist faction. So they both got different flags, which they fly um, in the diaspora. Um, and it was mostly the Aramean flag that uh, that the, the Syriacs in Bethlehem would, would fly. Um, but kind of to summarise, in this conflict in the diaspora, Assyrianists tend to identify very much as an ethnos, as an ancient pre-Christian Assyrian nation that happened to adopt Christianity. And again, I'm generalising a bit, but that's how it's broadly framed. Whereas Aramaeanists seem to think of the church, the Syriac Orthodox Church in particular, as kind of fulfilling that foregoing Aramean nationhood and expressing it now um, in relationship to Christ. So so Abuna Budras at one point said, we were a nation, now we are a church. But 
scare quotes around church because I don't think it means simply a purely associational thing as we talked about before. So in terms of the, the history, um, by the 13th century, certainly the Syriac Christian world had identified itself very explicitly as distinct from the, the Greek Christian world. Uh, and that was with you know Michael the Syrian who who understood everyone who spoke Aramaic and used Aramaic in liturgy as this is our people. But the roots of that division, people like St. Ephraim, who wrote a completely different kind of theology in uh, in Syriac, he, he used rhyming couplets, for instance, to 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 express theological mystery, um, where um, there was a different kind of uh, ecclesiastical setup even before the schisms, such as you know including uh, women choirs. Uh, within liturgy and, and deaconesses more prominently than in than other churches. Um, so, so there are two very, very distinct heritages there in terms of the, the Greek Western Christianity and the, the Syriac Eastern Christianity. Uh, but a lot of the meaning making around that, you referred to the kind of sociology of Aramaeanism, hasn't really settled, uh, didn't really settle until certainly the 13th century and possibly you could argue um, is still an arena of contest today. What I can speak to a little bit more clearly is the, the recent history and sociology of Aramaeanism um, within Bethlehem. So there's a memoir by Jabra Ibrahim Jabra, who was a prominent 20th century pan-Arabist. Um, and in his childhood mem memoir, he recalls the performing the, lit the Syriac liturgy without any knowledge of what it meant he said none of us knew what it meant but we knew the words were important and beautiful um now that's not the case today and it's interesting how few of uh, so that people who were my age born you know in the early 1980s or late 1970s they had begun uh, to to learn a little bit of syriac children who were in school uh, from kind of 2005 2006 were able to learn Syriac in a specific Syriac Orthodox school. Um, so my sense, and, and you know, our parents' generation, if you like, um, didn't know any Syriac at all unless they'd gone away specifically to, to study it. So there is a sense that really within the heyday of Pan-Arabism, uh, there was a neglect of, of not only the Aramaic language, but also the Aramaean identity, which really as confessional affiliations have become more important since the early 1980s with the arise of the Islamic movement and Islamic discourses around Palestinianism. Um, the, the kind of Syriac Orthodox Aramaic um, language and Aramaean history has become more prevalent, more central, whether or not people use that to counterpose their own identity to that of um, Muslim compatriots or other Christian compatriots. As we bring our dialogue to a close today, can I kindly ask you what you're working on next as a subsequent or current project? Well, you know, Ari, my uh, my career has taken a strange turn due to family reasons, um, among other reasons. I uh, I now live in a city that isn't um, doesn't have a university, and uh, I now work full time for a humanitarian organisation, which isn't wasn't part of the plan when I when I was uh, doing this this fieldwork, certainly. Um, I, I went from uh, researching uh, Syriac Orthodox population to doing some research on civil society peace building in Syria, including in contexts where there are um, 
uh, you know, Syriac militias and Syriac uh, um, charities and, and, and where some of this kind of institutionalization of Syriac identity is, is, is uh, more obvious and more prominent. Um, and then through doing that kind of research, I ended up beginning to work in the humanitarian sector. And so that, that's where, where I am. Now, the recent, the, the, I've often wondered with, with more or less existential anxiety, uh, to what extent there's a thread that goes from this work to what I'm doing now. And what I'm really interested in, in research that I suggest within, uh, within our sector is how we use this understanding of, of really radical different difference when it comes to understanding identity and belonging and the social terrain in which very often conflict unfolds. Um, I'm interested in in the kind of challenge that groups like say the Syriac Orthodox population in Palestine give to our categories including our categories in doing uh, humanitarian work. So happily within our sector now within the humanitarian sector there's a desire to, to, to pursue localization as it's called and often it's pursued very badly and um, and, and half-heartedly and in a kind of confused way. Uh, even when it's done well, very often it stops at how do we work with civil society organisations that are are local or staffed by locals or led by, by, by locals within the context in which we're working. But I think there's much more we can do in reaching beyond civil society organisations to properly engage the kind of social institutions such as the Syriac Taifa in Palestine to understand how their understanding of, of belonging well, living well, coexisting well together can inform the kind of interventions that humanitarian organiz organizations often informed with a very kind of um, uh, Western classical liberal understanding of how society should be, what the civic space should be. I think we can learn a lot from them. Uh, and I did a little bit of research, the civil society research in, in, uh, on um, Syrian peace building really it showed just how significant having that that um wow. that experience of being rightfully connected to a group whether it's Druze or Christian or, or or various forms of Islamic community in order to make sure that humanitarian or development interventions or peace building interventions can be successfully pursued. So within my job now, happily, I've got the opportunity to start thinking about um, research programs and research opportunities. It's just, there's more questions in this sector than, <laughs> than I have time to answer or pursue. So the short answer would be watch this space. I wish you the very best in your continued progress in your present pursuits and congratulate you on a masterpiece of a book. This was a gift to read and engage with and i could recommend it wholeheartedly to all of our listeners um, as a serious scholarly contribution but also a deeply human and moving account of syriac christian life thank you ari those are very very kind words i really appreciate it and it's been a pleasure to talk to you today thank you to our listeners, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Mark Calder. We have been discussing his new book, Bethlehem's Syriac Christians, Self, Nation, and Church in Dialogue and Practice, published in Piscataway, New Jersey, 
by Gorgias Press, 2017. Mark is an honorary fellow at the University of Durham's Religion and Theology Department and is presently a humanitarian policy advisor with World Vision. Again, this is Ari Barbalat in dialogue with Mark Calder discussing his new book, Bethlehem Syriac Christians, Self, Nation, and Church in Dialogue and Practice, published in Piscataway, New Jersey by Gorgias Press, 2017. Thank you.